0: are you a physical therapist who wants to pay off your student loans gain financial independence and have true autonomy in your work
1: and your life
2: the best way to do that is to open your own practice but how what are the steps that practically guarantee your success
1: well that's what you're about to learn the performance doc academy podcast is your audio blueprint to opening your very own physical therapy practice so let's go Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Performance Doc Academy podcast. We're your host. I'm Dr. Leon Knight.
2: I'm Dr. Carrie Knight.
0: And I'm Dr. Jared Cooper. And today we're going to tackle the tough topic of why you should never take insurance.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're going to ruffle some feathers, but uh, I do believe having the experience of one, taking that route where we did not accept insurance, uh, we both, you and I, Jared, can now share insight as to why we took that approach and then... In another episode, we can talk about the other approach where you do accept insurance. But in this podcast, we're going to just focus on why you should never take insurance and give you some great reasons why, if you are wrestling between taking insurance and not taking insurance, this podcast will make it easier for you.
0: I think a lot. That's probably one of the biggest decisions physios try to make early on: is should they take cash or not, and like what 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 approach. And people talk about it like it's like whether you take insurance or don't take insurance is your business model, but that's not, you know, it's not really your business model. It's your payment model. It's how people pay you. Mm -hmm. Your business model has a lot of components to it. Um, and your payment structure is, is one component of your business model. So what we're really talking about is how do you want to get paid? Do you want to get paid by your patient or do you want to get paid by an insurance company for the work that you do? So that's essentially where we're going to go. I think, Maybe even before we get into the reasons people should never take insurance, let's just maybe we should just briefly touch upon the difference between a cash practice, an insurance practice, and an at a network practice, just to lay the foundation of what the difference between those three things
1: is. Yeah. yeah. So first off, cash like that's where I started. I had a flat rate. I think it was one hundred dollars. No, one hundred and twenty dollars for an eval, one hundred dollars for follow-ups. But just think you have a flat cash rate you may have packages but they're still cash so you're not a, you're not billing any out of network benefits the cash model is simply you come in for that appointment you pay up front and you receive your um your service no other payment no other bill you were going to receive after that particular session
0: no third party not right. that's it. It's just no. you and the patient right. it's no. direct
2: direct All right.
1: to consumer
0: Now the out-of-network thing confuses people, though, because when you when you go out-of-network, in many ways you are taking cash sometimes, and then sometimes you're getting insurance. Let's you want to tackle that first.
2: Yeah, sure. So with out-of-network, basically, with most people, not every insurance plan, but most people have some form of in-network benefits and some form of -of out-of-network benefits with their insurance company. Um, And so if you're using your out of network benefits, that means that the company you're working with, so the physical therapy practice doesn't have any contract with the insurance company. Um, so they can bill your insurance company, whatever they want. Um, and if you have good out of network benefits, then those might be paid for by your insurance company.
0: But of course there's a deductible, right? So let's say somebody has a $5,000 deductible and you quote unquote, accept their out of network benefits. They're essentially going to be paying cash. Yeah. Because they're not going to hit that deductible very quickly, probably not within your treatment span. And that deductible now, right, you see people with like $8,000, 10000 Those, Even though those folks have out-of-network benefits, they are ostensibly cash, cash pay patients. And some will still opt to have you bill their insurance, even if their insurance is never going to pay, because they're going to attempt to eat down that deductible um, with the bills that you send out. And some of them will simply just opt to just not have anything to do with insurance whatsoever. Cause once you start sending things to the insurance company, they're going to start requesting things from you, whether that's going to be authorization or that's going to be notes. They're going to want something from you. So it adds a level of complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people need to understand that when you accept insurance, what you're really doing is you're accepting what's called assignment of benefits which means normally the term reimbursement, we say we get reimbursed by the insurance company, but that's not true. Like we don't get reimbursed by the insurance company because we didn't pay anything to the insurance company. The insurance company is not reimbursing us. Reimbursement back in the day used to be like this. Somebody would go to the doctor, they would pay the doctor. Then that person would send the bill to the insurance company and the insurance company would reimburse the patient Mm -hmm. for the payment that they made to the doctor. That's where the term reimbursement came from. But that's not what actually happens these days. What happens these days is the person assigns their benefits to you. What that means is they sign a piece of paper that says, okay, I'm not going to take payment from the insurance company. I'm assigning this payment to you, the provider, the physical therapist, so that the insurance company can just pay you directly. I'm not going to be involved in this transaction, which is why insurance companies then pay providers. Um, So I just wanted to clarify that for anybody that's confused about why we actually get paid by an insurance company, as opposed to the patient, the patient is the one that actually has the benefits. Then that's why.
1: But also too, what gets sneaky with out of network is accepting out of network benefits. Sometimes the insurance company will pay, send the payment to the The patient. patient. Yes. And blue cross (laughs) used to do that all the time (laughs) Does Right. Because they, you know, they just make it even more difficult for out of network providers. And, Oftentimes, not oftentimes, but there are some percent. There's some people that do not pay you, right? Like, like they, let's like say, for instance, if they have a um, a lower deductible, and you go, all right, Jared, you have a lower deductible. I'm not going to accept any money up front, right? Because I'm assuming, I'm, let's see how this all plays out. How much they're going to actually pay based on what I build, and then you just give me the check, right? When you do receive it. Some people never pay, pay you. Like, that did and, happen to no, us. Right? We've had that happen to us. Yeah.
0: So sometimes you're chasing after the insurance company for money. Right. This is a bizarre situation. What 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 Leon's describing is, so let's say like Blue Cross used to do this to us all the time. That was the primary provider that would do this with our out-of-network claims. They would send the check to the patient. The, che- the patient would would receive a check for, let's say, $1,000. <laughs> They'd be like, oh, it's Christmas!" Right? Like,
2: I just got paid to go to physical therapy. <laughs> some
0: people, some people look at that and they're like, "I ain't telling nobody." They go to the they go to their bank and they deposit the check in their own account
2: because mm-hmm.
0: the checks written out to them. And you got to call them up and be like, "Look, that's not for you. That's for me." <laughs> and they have to they have to endorse the check over. Right. You. So it becomes like a very awkward situation, especially after they've deposited the money in their own account. So. I think that really brings us to the first reason why you should never take insurance, right? Which is this concept of the collection headache. And so we just talked about a couple of those things. In-network or out-of-network, you can end up with a collection headache. So we're just going to put in-network and out-of-network together into one category called taking insurance. And then we're going to compare that to this thing called, you know, a cash practice, right? Accepting cash. And the first headache you get with insurance is oftentimes you can't just start treating somebody. You have to get authorization, right? So Carrie, can you enlighten us as to what authorization is?
2: Yeah. So with with physical therapy, typically when an insurance company requires authorization, um, the patient can come in for the initial evaluation so that way you can then request something. If, if you haven't seen them yet, you don't really know what you're requesting. So they, the initial assessment is usually paid for, but anything additional, you have to then send all this documentation to the insurance company proving that your patient really needs physical therapy. And then you can ask for a certain number of visits, but they usually make their own decision that they can have Six visits, whatever it is, um, and then each time you want more, you have to go through the process again.
0: It's kind—it's of, kind of like going to Daddy, right? Yeah. Being like, you watch—you watch fifteen minutes of TV. Right, tell me your kids don't do this. You give them a little TV time, and then they come over and they're like, "Can, can I get five more minutes? Can I get five more?" You're like, "All right, all right. You, you got five more minutes. Go ahead." Right? Let's say you're still working. Then they come back after five. Can I get? Can I get five more minutes? Let me just get five more minutes. Like, that's you feel like a child asking for permission to yeah. like treat your patient in a way. That's what authorization kind of feels like.
1: Yeah. Right. And you know what's wild is, I can see if they were saying, "Okay, send us the notes so I can re- like, see if they're progressing," and uh, like. They don't really ask for that. They just want well, you they to do. go through they do. Sometimes sometimes. They really just want you to go through the process of Hey, can, can I get more can I get more visits? And and they're like, Oh well, okay, yeah. And if you don't time it right, you got this gap in treatment because it takes a little bit longer for them to get back to you. It's, it's just yeah. a yeah. headache. It's and a or game. you
2: have to then track it on your end to right. know like, okay, when are they up? When do I need to resubmit? And also there have been many times that we didn't know we needed authorization. Right. They don't make it very clear when you check the patient's benefits that they need authorization. Um, and then every insurance is different, so some are like, "Oh, you need it after ten visits." So then you have to track how many visits they've been to before you need it. It's just, it's just a headache.
1: <laughs> and if they, whatever they don't author, so I just want to make it clear to those that are listening, whatever they don't authorize, they don't pay for. So it's not. It's, don't don't think. Well, you know what. Um, it's okay, oh, Well, I'll just keep treating it. Look, you have treated for free if you made the for mistake you. and didn't get authorization. So I, I think I want to make that clear. Money-wise, you have lost money.
0: Right, then you got to ask the patient to pay and then they don't want to pay because they're <laughs> like, listen, you screwed, you screwed up, not me. Right. Right. You should have asked for the authorizations. Like they, they're they're, they're going to put that onus on you for sure. Yes. All right, so headache number one is authorizations. Okay, so now you get the authorization, great. You're treating the patient. You're supposed to get paid. And then they send, the insurance company sends what's called an explanation of benefits, which is not a bill. Everybody thinks it's a bill. Even though at the top of an EOB, explanation of benefits, it says this is not, not a bill. bill. <laughs> it still looks like a bill. It acts like a bill. It talks like a bill. walks like a bill. But it's not a bill. And it goes to the patient, and it says this is what the insurance company has paid. This is what you might owe. So the patient looks at it, usually freaks out if that number is a little high. They call you up. They're like, why does the insurance company say that I owe $500? It's like, no, what did you get? Did you get it? Look at the top of the page. Does it say explanation of benefit? Yes. Look right below that. You see where it says this is not a bill? (laughs) Yes. That's not a bill. It's just informing you what you might owe, but it's up to us to decide whether you do owe it. We're going to go after the insurance company and try to get that paid for you. It puts a lot of stress On everyone into the involved. mind of the patient. <laughs> everyone involved, everyone's stressed, right? Yes. About, about the EOB. And sometimes they reject stuff for no good reason. They yep. just, they're just like, I'm just not going to pay for this. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or they'll go like, right?
2: let's say you bill five units and they'll, instead of saying, oh, we only cover four, we're going to pay for four units. They just reject the whole thing. Cause they say, we don't do more than four units a day. And so then you have to go, right. and it's just like, for what? It's causing more work for everybody involved. But
0: then you got to rebuild the whole thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's right. Yeah. So re- rejections are a big problem. Now, sometimes they'll reject it and they'll ask for notes, right? So that means that you have to essentially produce the actual soap notes for a particular patient and send those soap notes into the insurance company so that somebody that decided that they don't want to be a physio anymore and they just want to spend their day rejecting claims can read your soap note and deem you worthy, uh, for payment. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right.
0: Which <laughs> I mean, look, I, I understand everybody needs, you know, it just reminds me of, it reminds me of telemarketers. You ever get called by a telemarketer and you just think to yourself, this is what you do. This is, <laughs> this is what you do. You call people at 7 PM while they're eating dinner with their family <laughs> to sell them a timeshare. Like you have agreed to do this. I mean, so, people that work for insurance companies, I'm sure they're very good people, but you have to understand they are given a directive to look for problems with claims in order to reject people's care.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: So that is the way that it is, unfortunately.
1: To make it even worse, your your turnaround time of payment it can be anywhere between three to twelve weeks, mm-hmm. right? And so, especially if you're just getting started, if you if you decide to take insurance. Um, I hope you have a, a savings account full of three to four months of operating costs before you even start because you're not going to really receive any money for the patients that you're seeing presently until the next three. I, 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 they say 45 days, but it can be a little bit longer than that. You're looking at three months at minimum, right? Mm-hmm. And so you almost get a little bitter where, like, Mary's walking in two times a week. You're treating them, you're doing well, and you get nothing. Nothing. You're making it a, get a copay, right? You can accept the copay, but $25 session, you're thinking, man, I am making $25 an hour yeah. with Mary twice a week. And then depending on how many people you see in that week, right? And just adds up, and you're thinking, okay, all right, all right, but, I'm getting a little restless because you still have bills. Yeah. You, um, have, you have expenses, you have rent, like for the first three week, three months. So, uh, and, and, even you got to add what we just talked about authorization right. rejections notes so like it's a compound effect
2: and it like almost makes you hesitate a little bit because you want to see that you're getting paid like you know i'll go back and look in our our kind of ar and see where we're at for particular patients because you want to make sure that for that at least those first two visits kind of you got paid so you don't you know you're not going to be dealing with all these rejections because if you see somebody for 12 weeks at that point, they're probably discharged anyway. If insurance then comes back and doesn't pay for anything, and you're not even treating the patient anymore, like it just gets really complicated.
1: Yeah.
0: The the term AR is one that you might hear. It's It sounds for accounts receivable, which I, I believe is probably accounting term, mm-hmm. which basically is the stuff that hasn't been paid, and it's still due by the insurance company. And what, what that stuff does is it picks up what's called aging. So aging is the, the time between the day that you perform the actual treatment and the time that you get paid. And so most EMR systems will, or or billing systems will print up an aging report where it'll tell you this claim is 90 days old. This claim is 120 days old. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you guys, but there are times when things would age up to six months, even a year where you're still trying to get paid for something that you did six months to a year ago, mm-hmm. which makes accounting a nightmare because you might have $20,000 out there floating around trying to figure out whether you can meet payroll or what, whatever your expenses are. And you have money coming in, but you have no idea when it is coming in. It's just, it's not up to you.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think if you are on your own starting out, like this is really, really hard to do by yourself. Um, because it does require so much follow-up and working with the insurances, checking people's benefits, you know, asking for authorization. Um, So it's just so much follow-up, it's just hard to do as one person while you're the person also treating all the patients.
0: So let's talk about like, the impact that it has on your decision-making as a physical therapist working with a patient because in the back of your mind, if you're always thinking, does the insurance company pay for this? It's going to affect how you make decisions. Mm
1: -hmm. That's right. You got to think about it as a, as a healthcare practitioner or provider, all healthcare practitioners have a sense of like servitude. Like I, I have to provide a service pro bono, like for the betterment of our patients. And so you are always trying to do whatever it takes in order to get someone better. But when you go into business, you wrestle with that a little bit because you now have an operation, a family, and yourself to provide for where it's not coming from, like, your, your salary is not coming from an organization or a company, right? Like, it's com- coming from who you see and what you do with who you see. And so that that's a that's a conflict and a fighting and a fight that you have to battle, and so unfortunately it can affect some of the decisions that you make with your patients, whether it is should I should I do this treatment, should I build this amount of units in order to get you know like you start to you start to put how you bill first as opposed to what the patient needs first, and then if you're not careful you realize that. You're not necessarily treating the way what's best for the patient as opposed to what's best for how you get paid or how you um make a living mm-hmm. and we could
0: use we can use like dry needling as a practical example okay, because yeah. most insurance companies don't pay for dry needling
1: that's right and so
0: if you do something like dry needling and the patient is quote unquote an insurance patient so they're they're paying you through their insurance and the insurance company doesn't cover dry needling. Well, now you have to go to that patient and say, look, your insurance company is not going to... Well, you have two choices. Number one, you do the dry needling. And you eat the cost. And you bill the insurance company knowing you're not going to get paid, and you just basically get paid on everything else that you do. Or two, you actually have to ask the, pay, the, the patient to pay for dry needling as a cash service, even though they're going through insurance. And this is a really hard sell because they don't know that they have an insurance that doesn't pay for dry needling. Right. So they're going to be like, wait a minute, my insurance doesn't pay for dry needling. Why not? Like, it's your fault. Like, why can't you (laughs) convince them to pay? It's like, that's not what I do. Like they're not going to pay for dry needling. Okay. So what do I have to do to get this service? You have to pay me cash, but I'm already paying the insurance company, you know, a thousand dollars a month for my, uh, you know, as my rate, And now I'm paying you a $30 copay. And now I got to pay you more to get dry needling. Like that's a hard pill to swallow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's where it it adds up for them as the patient. They're starting to think, okay, well, almost they think it's a scheme, right? They start thinking, wait, (laughs) your (laughs) scheme. Well, it's like,
2: have you ever gone to the dentist and like, they're like, You go to the dentist. You go for just your checkup, and then they're like, "Okay, well, we do a cancer screening. We do this. You could do your normal X-ray, or you could stand in this one where it moves all the. And you feel like they're just trying to sell you. And so I think with it does get a little hairy with dry needling because you want to make sure that it's really what the patient needs, you know, and that they understand that versus just them just thinking you're just trying to upsell them on another thing. Right.
0: My dentist upsold me on that tooth whitening thing. <laughs> I, yes. I, I, I tried it. She got me. She was like, you know, you have yellow, you have yellow stains in your teeth. I was asking, I drink, I drink tea, like pretty much all day long, like okay. black tea. So it, it basically, you know, it, it stains your teeth a little bit. I was like, and I, I was shooting a lot of content. So I was like, Oh, I don't want my teeth to be yellow. on. <laughs> uh, good, let, me, let me get the teeth. white. Have you ever
2: had your teeth whitened? I have.
0: You have? I think I have did too, you get yeah. those? Did, did you get those excruciating shots of pain?
2: Yes. It's so painful. Afterward?
0: I was I, they didn't tell me about that uh, they told me it's like but... the most they did yeah. she didn't tell me anything about that i wake up the next day and i'm getting these shooting neurogenic pains like, like these so neuropathic pains right? in my fucking teeth <laughs> and i call her i'm like what the fuck is this and she's like oh yeah i forgot to tell you you're gonna get like neuropathic tooth pain <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck it was so painful anyway uh back to the topic. People, again. Wait,
2: wait, People so, probably say the same thing after we needle them and they go home.
1: You know what I'm like, saying? What the yeah. hell is it? <laughs> and what did, did would you, um, did it work? I mean, a little bit.
0: Oh, it worked, right? so then, it know, so then, then what it happens works. is let's say it works. Then you go back to drinking tea. Yeah, and, <laughs> right
2: and then you already know now about the pain and you're like, I'm not going back. <laughs> right, right.
0: Exactly. Oh, I'm man. not doing that shit again. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Anyway. So like, That's the thing is, is, is you're right. They, they, they look at the additional services that we, we provide as an upsell. Then what happens? Then we know that they're going to do that. We know the patient is going to question what we're doing. So then we stop doing it. That's right. right? Then we're like, ah, they don't really need dry needling. Maybe I can do something else. Or maybe they need something that we know doesn't get paid very well. Like maybe they just need a damn ice pack or a hot pack or something that's just going to calm them down for 10 minutes. We know that they don't get paid for that. So we kind of just stopped doing it. We're like, ah, we're not going to do hot packs and cold packs anymore. Even though patients love to sit on a cold pack and compression, even though they love to sit on a hot pack and tens, nobody's really going to pay us for it. So eh, we're just not going to put it into the flow. It takes too long. It doesn't get paid. I'm consulting a business right now that literally just stopped doing modalities altogether because they don't get paid. Mm -hmm. I said, well, first of all, It does get paid a little bit, especially tens, but that's not even why they're not doing it. They're not doing it because they don't get paid. Okay, so they don't get paid. But the patients love it. That's a patient, the last 10 minutes of a therapy session, you know what the patient says? They get on the tens and they get on the hot pack, they lay down for a minute, and what do they say? This is my favorite part of the treatment. (laughs) (laughs) This is my favorite thing. Are you going to deny them their favorite thing? Just because you're not going to get paid for? I mean, listen, if that's what they showed up. I mean, look, if anything, if if all modalities ever did, ever did for a patient, was make them show up for therapy because they know that they're going to get pampered in the end, then that is a therapeutic intervention because I need them there to do my thing. Well, they Jared, cannot show up. Jared, check this, you know this out. I'm saying?
1: There are times where patients will come 15 to 20 minutes late to almost strategically not do the first part (laughs) (laughs) or 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 leave out or or minimize how much they're going to do actively so that they still can get the 10 to 15 minutes at the end of the session so Uh you're absolutely right if they value that you have to find a way
2: yeah if that's what makes them buy in then it is we just had a patient walk in the other day off the street and she said uh yeah I'm, i'm getting therapy at the spine center but all they're making me do is exercise. I really think there's more modalities <laughs> that they could be doing. <laughs> Will you guys do that for me?
1: <laughs> and we said, yep. yes. Sure,
2: come on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. So the problem is, is that, okay, we all know that there are codes that don't get paid as well. And then if you stop doing those codes just because they don't get paid, you're now changing the way you treat based on the insurance company. And that, that really boils down to even things like the difference between Therax, therapeutic activity, and neuro. It's like mm-hmm. you start thinking differently just so that you can get the higher paid code on your bill. And you know you, the, the, it really calls into the question the ethics involved in billing. And unfortunately, it's the situation that an in-network provider is in that generates the ethics question. Mm-hmm. There's no ethics question when you're cash. You just do what you want to do. It's what the patient needs. It doesn't make a difference. There is no ethics question. The ethics question is generated by the fact that the insurance company pays us not for our time, which is what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Person at a 45 minute session, I'm gonna pay you for 45 minutes of physical therapy. They pay us by what we do during that time. And that's gonna that means that we have to then consider what we're gonna get paid for what we're doing. And why would you spend 15 minutes giving a patient hot pack and tens, even if it's what they want, when you could be doing a timed code that makes three times more? So what do we do? We say no. I'm not gonna do hot pack and tens. I'm gonna give you something that is quote unquote more valuable. Now, who's it more valuable for? What if they really needed a hot pack and tens and you had them do 15 more minutes of exercise? Right? And then they stop showing up. Like the person you just mentioned, mm-hmm. who very well might stop going to that place because they're just not, they're just basically, like, okay, I'm, a, I'm only gonna do codes with you that get paid. Like, right. that's not right.
2: Yeah, it definitely is tricky because then, Like even when you're writing your note, you have to say, like, you can pretty much justify a lot of your um, interventions into therapeutic exercise versus therapeutic activity versus neuro re-ed. But like, it's just annoying to even have to think about, like, why can't I just write down what I did with the patient instead of having to decide, can I call that neuro or do I have to call that therapeutic exercise, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that gets us into the next topic, which is like EMR nightmares. And I'll just tell a quick story just to give you an example. So right when uh, MIPS, I want to say it was MIPS. Maybe it was whatever that, Medicare basically, as we all know, makes us jump through hoops every couple of years. They change their requirements as far as, Our functional outcomes, measures, and what we're doing with people. And we have to report certain things to them. And they do this because they're tracking nationwide numbers and they're trying to figure out utilization of services and all the things they're trying to figure out. I think it was MIPS. And if you don't do MIPS, then you get a deduction in your pay rate. And if you do it, then you get a raise in your pay rate by Medicare. So we were doing it. We were doing what we were supposed to do. Our practice was being fully compliant. The problem was that the EMR system, the way that they were handling it, didn't quite work. And so what they sent into Medicare was non-compliant. So we got dinged by Medicare. Medicare came to us and said, listen, you didn't do X, Y, and Z. We're going to reduce your rate. And I said, what the hell is this? (laughs) So I looked into my EMR. I saw that we were doing it. I called the EMR company. I said, why did they just ding us? And the EMR company was unclear. I called Medicare and I said, why did you ding me? And they said, well, because you didn't have this, this, and this. And I looked into the EMR and I was like, oh, that is not our fault. The EMR was not doing this correctly. So I basically recorded the phone call between the, th- I told everybody that we were recording. I recorded the phone call between, uh, the, the, uh, Medicare and my EMR company. And I explained the whole thing Then I took that recording And I put it into a record, and I sent them a letter. And eventually, Medicare agreed with me and said, no, you're right. Your EMR did not do this correctly. This is not your fault. And they basically went back on what they said, and we got the money that we deserve. Okay, fine. This happened because I was dealing with a third-party piece of software. And EMRs, for the most part, there are some decent ones out there. But many, many, many EMR systems turn into an obstacle to treatment and not a facilitator. And when you are a cash based practice, you could simply do all of your documentation inside of Google Drive, just into a doc, just however you want. But when you have to jump through EMR hoops, you start creating essentially friction between you and what you have to document. Have you ever tried to use a, a, a trashy EMR and do an evaluation and document into the evaluation at the same time that you're actually doing the assessment? It's really hard <laughs> to do. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: You know? If, it's too, it's too much. Like in terms of you got the drop down boxes, and there's multiple layers to it. Where I feel like when you have the Google Docs, those times when I was documenting, when I was um, strictly doing the cash based model, uh, or or just only accepting cash, not being a network insurance, I was just I didn't even I didn't even go to a Google Doc. I was on Word, and I, would, I had Word documents, and and all I did was write what the subjective was, what we did, and and that was it. Assessment. Like it <laughs> <assessment>. was <laughs> it was very easy to do, right? And um but these templates I don't know why they're so complicated. And then we we haven't even mentioned how it's complicated to customize your own template. Like right, like so they give you the option to customize, like, oh this is great. I'm gonna be able to do this and be able to do that. Then you realize, oh, this function doesn't allow you to do this and like, you can't, you can't combine <laughs> the two. You know, I want degrees or percentages, but they give you one of the Like, it, 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 it ends up right. being more of a hassle, right?
2: For sure. And then you're like, let me just use the text box, whatever.
1: Right, and, right the free text And there's box. also,
2: like, a lot of, I guess there are, like, checks and balances within the system, but you don't always, like, need them. And, yeah, you just have to find, like, ways around it. And like you said, trying to then document while the patient's there, like, it's just a headache. And so then you have extra notes to do on your own outside of the clinic. So the EMRs can definitely be a nightmare. You know, like you said, there are some good ones, but not all are good.
0: <laughs> Early on before, uh, well before the iPhone came out was something called the Palm Pilot. That was like the first uh, PDA, I think it's called the personal device, personal PAD, personal, the personal device, whatever it yeah. is. And, uh, you know, you just put your calendar in there and your contacts and whatnot. And that company was pretty revolutionary because what they did was they had a rule whereby they would design their interface, their user interface, such that it took the minimum number of clicks in order to get whatever it is that you needed. So they determined, okay, in order to get from the home screen to a contact's phone number, required two clicks. In order to send an email, required three clicks, whatever it is, right? Right. The insurance company, uh, the insurance, the EMR providers, the the companies that make the software that we document into do not understand this concept (laughs) at all. So like even the most popular, I think, EMR on the planet, probably I would say is web PT. I would say that's the one I see most often Mm -hmm. is one of the worst when it comes to clicks. It's just, it requires so many clicks to get to where you want to go and it, it just slows you down so much. Now, just to be clear, If you want to be in network, you must use an EMR. Mm -hmm. You cannot document in Google within network because you need the software to be able to work with Medicare compliance requests. You need the software to be able to track authorizations. You need the software to do what the software does in the background in order to remain compliant with the insurance companies. And That is really the only reason that you need an EMR, is compliance.
1: And right, EMRs have the easy ability, easy ability to export. Right. I mean, it what integrates you know, like, it, right. it, yeah, ability. it just it exports what you need, right? So it makes that easy. But go ahead, I'm sorry.
0: No, no, no. I mean, that's I mean, that's basically the big deal cuz you can I mean, you can use a scheduling and any scheduling software will give you outputs as far as you know, some of the some of the metrics that you need. Mm-hmm. And you can combine those with financial metrics without the EMR. But I mean, that for me the real reason we got an EMR in the first place was compliance. It wasn't really for documentation.
2: Yeah. And us also, I would say, and then we found out what a headache ours was because, like you said, we were using, like, another scheduling software. And then we were using, an, like, just something different for everything because the EMR didn't have everything we wanted. And so that was a headache in itself in that we had, like, eight different platforms that we were using, like, something to send the patient text messages. something You know, it was, like, six different
1: things. Mm-hmm.
0: Right now, you guys are on Hino, which you love. Mm-hmm. Yes. As an EMR, right? As far as the the best of the worst of the best is like you know <laughs> you're on it. You're on it now. Um, particularly because it integrates extremely well with with um, the messaging services. Oh, it has its own messaging service. It does. Mm-hmm. Um, it does all your billing for you. They even Hino will even do your billing, right? They have a billing department yes. that integrates with your practice, which is which is awesome. But this episode is about why not to be a network. So
1: <laughs> That's right. The
0: EMR. EMR is one of those things you have to wrestle with. And then finally, there's rate problems, right? So let's talk about this concept that maybe new physios who don't own their own practice are not familiar with, which is the concept of a flat rate payer. What is that? And why does it suck so bad?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, flat rate payer. We actually have only one. Two. Two. Uh, yeah. Two. So two. Um, and if you accept if you decide to accept workers' comp, you add that as the third one, right? But (laughs) But, um, go uh, ahead, sorry. You can't
0: can't see it, but Carrie just clutched her chest when Leon said workers' (laughs) comp. I don't know. (laughs) That was like a subconscious.
2: It was. I didn't even realize I did it. But the worst thing about flat rate payers is that you're already working with a third-party company, right? You're already not direct-to-consumer. The third party is the insurance company. You're bringing in a fourth party usually when it comes to flat rate payers that are just taking some of your money is what it comes down to. So let me give you an example. So United Healthcare, let's say they use a company called Optum that they do all your contracting. So you don't go directly to United Healthcare and say, hey, we want to be in network with you guys. Let's work on a contract. No, you have to go to this fourth company to work with. And they say, no, this is all we're paying you—a flat rate. Let's say seventy dollars. That's it. That's all we're gonna pay you, no matter what you do, no matter how much time you spend with the patient. Daily rate is seventy dollars. They then have a contract with United Healthcare, where they accept, you know, however much, and they get paid whatever that additional is that United Healthcare is paying you.
1: So, it, so to clean that up, ultimately, United Healthcare says this is what we have allocated for physical therapy per visit. And it could be 110, right? But Optum says, you know what, Carrie, you guys, performance docs, we're only gonna pay you 70. We're gonna take that $40. Imagine they take that $40 per visit for all the providers and network providers for United Healthcare. They're making a good chunk.
2: And they're not doing anything. All they do is the contracting in the beginning. Like after that, they're not doing a single thing for us. And they're taking forty dollars of what we would get from United. I
0: want you to imagine you go to a grocery store, right? And instead of handing the money to the cashier, there's another guy there who you're like, you have to hand the money to that guy. You give him ten bucks. He takes two bucks, puts it in his pocket, and gives eight bucks to the cashier. That's essentially what's happening. And you're looking
1: like, what did you do? Wait, wait, you're like, wait a minute. (laughs)
0: You know, I'm do you provide me with anything? No. Right,
2: right. United Healthcare basically is like, okay, we don't want to employ people to do the contracting, so we're going to use exactly. Optum, but we're not paying them. You're paying them. Yeah, and it's, exactly. It's just, I mean, yeah, it's, it's terrible. But then it does again, kind of going back to ethically and then it's like, okay, for those patients, do we see them for the whole hour or we're getting paid the same thing if we see them for 20 minutes. Right. So like going back to those ethics of like true patient care and what you want to do with the patient. Um, it's something that then the providers are thinking about that they shouldn't have to be thinking about.
0: Right. Therein lies the problem is that it starts to affect, even if you, even if you think $70 is a good reimbursement rate, $70 for what, what amount of time, mm-hmm. $70 for an hour, that's a shitty reimbursement rate, right. Seven dollars for half an hour. That's a pretty good reimbursement rate. That's one hundred and forty dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. So then, what you do? You start truncating your time with these patients, right. knowing full well you're getting a flat rate. That then becomes an ethics problem.
1: That's right. Even to go off that, I never forget. Uh, I can't. I won't say who it was, where I was working at, but ultimately, per, per depending on what the insurance was, he would like, say, "Oh well, I'm only getting thirty bucks for them, right?" And so they're going to get. Five minutes of my time, hands-on, and the rest they're gonna do exercise. And then, oh, this is a good insurance. This this is a good insurance. So let me like it was that type of dialogue and you know communication. So it really impacts how you view the service for that patient, not the patient, but you view that service for the patient. But all patients should be treated the same, sort of speak.
0: Yeah, I mean, it even will boil down to your marketing because there are some physios that actually want to market and target a certain demographic because they have better insurance. Mm -hmm. Is that even ethical? I mean, it, 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 it starts to leak into almost every aspect of your business when there is non-equality among your patients and the payers. Mm -hmm. And it starts to, I think, affect the way that you think about delivering your services. And the moment you start thinking about it based upon something financial, it caught you start to essentially you don't sleep as well at night yeah. because you start to really feel a sense of guilt because subconsciously you might make a decision that you know you're making based on money. And then you're like, ah, but they don't really need it anyway. You start justifying it Mm -hmm. in your own head, right? "Ah, I don't really need this. But then you start to think about it and you're like, yeah, you know what? I I made that decision and I didn't make it for the right reason. So it's very, it's very problematic.
2: I I think going back to what we talked about in the beginning and it not being like a business model, it's a payment model, but that like what you just talked about is why it becomes so ingrained with people's business models. Mm. Um, and so that's why like people associate it with that when it doesn't have to be, but I think it just gets associated with like when you think of a PT mill, like it's like people blame the insurance companies on why they're mills and so it becomes like a business model rather than a payment model.
0: True. True. And you can't set your own rates as well, right? So if you're in network you're not setting your own rates. Now you guys have actually done a quite a respectable job of negotiations, particularly you told me your story about how you got a better rate with blue cross blue shield. And it had, I just, I just remember the story had something to do with you hawking somebody for a while (laughs) before, (laughs) before you got what you deserved. But for the most part, small potatoes, you know, independent, you know, physical therapy clinics do not have negotiating power for the most part. No. And Whatever the insurance company decides to pay you, that's what they're going to pay you. When you are a cash-based practitioner, when you want to raise, you give yourself a raise. I remember there was that, I, I want to say it was an auto, it was a bank commercial, I can't remember, where this guy walks into the bank and then he's, he's a self-employed person. He goes up and then she says something about him not getting paid a lot. And he goes, huh, that's interesting. Maybe I should give myself a raise. He goes, oh, congratulations. I just got a raise. Because <laughs> like, when, when you're a cash-based practitioner, you want a raise, you give yourself a raise. You just that's charge right. more. Then You don't have control of that. And in fact, of course, as we all know, the trend is the other way. Inflation's going up. But reimbursements, quote unquote, reimbursement rates are going down.
2: Mm -hmm. The other thing, too, I think we should talk about, because I think we've heard people say this in that they're like, well, yeah, I'll just take their insurance and then I'll charge them an extra amount like that. You're legally you're not allowed to do that. Once you're in a contract with the insurance company, like that's the rate you have to accept. And you even have to also collect whatever you're supposed to collect from the patient. Um, If you're audited by the insurance company and it shows that you haven't been collecting the patient's copay. Unless there's something on file that states, um, you know, this patient cannot, like they sign something saying that they don't have enough financially to pay for your service, um, you can actually then get in trouble from the insurance company. They can either say, okay, we're just, you know, if you're only accepting that amount, that means that's all you need from us. So we're going to change your contract to be, you know, we're just going to pay you $60 instead of the $100 you were getting. Um, So you have to really be careful with that kind of stuff too, once you are contracted with these insurance companies.
0: Even if you're not contracted, when you're at a network, you still cannot waive copays. A lot of people don't understand this. You can't just decide what to charge somebody. You have to basically even when you're at a network, you cannot waive co-insurances, you cannot waive copays. There are laws that prevent that. And the reason that there are laws that prevent that has more to do with preferential pay uh preferential treatment of patients. The reason that there are laws that prevent you from doing that is so that you can't have your best friend come in and waive all of his, all all of his, Mm -hmm. uh, copays. And then, you know, a stranger walks off the street and you charge him the copay. And then the next person comes in and you know, that person from the deli that you go to. So you wave their copays and then someone else comes in and you get, and you charge them the copays. It's because to protect patients from preferential treatment more so than it is the insurance that The the government doesn't want you to do that, and so there are there are state laws now. Every state law is different, but in New Jersey, there's a state law for sure that says you cannot waive copays, you cannot waive deductibles. At least you can't do them on a regular basis, with the exception of one thing, which is what Carrie just mentioned, which is if if somebody has a true, justifiable financial hardship, then you can actually waive them. But you just can't do it willy-nilly. So even if you're at a network, you got to be careful about making decisions about waiving things and giving people discounts and this, that, and the other, because every patient needs to be treated the same. That's why you have one fee schedule. Like every business needs one fee schedule. You can't have a fee schedule for Medicare and a fee schedule for this and a fee schedule for that and a fee schedule for cash. In reality, you're supposed to have one fee schedule, just one. Now, the insurance company has their own fee schedule called the reasonable and customary. It's like what they're willing to pay. But you as a provider must have one price for your services that you send to all payers at the same time. The reason for that, again, is equality. They're trying to prevent you from treating one person differently than you're treating somebody else. Mm -hmm. Now, in a cash based model, theoretically, you still have to abide by the ethics involved. But you are a little bit freer to have a sliding scale based on financial need. If somebody comes in and says, okay, your rate is 150. Well, I can only afford, you know, uh, to pay you 80. You can make a decision if we are going to accept 80 from that patient. So long as you have a financial justifiable reason why you're giving that person a discount. So in, on one hand, in the cash-based model, you do have the freedom to make decisions. The only thing that beholds you at that point in time is... S- to some degree, the ethics of constantly changing your prices, but more so it's just you're, you're not allowed to essentially have different rates for everybody. So long as you have one rate that you say, okay, this is my rate, I'm $150 an hour, you can choose to discount that based on financial need. However, what Carrie's talking about is if you, can, if you do that in an in-network, if you have a contracted rate, even if you're at a network, that insurance company can come after you and say, you can't do this, and essentially either drop you as a payer or they can they can sue you. They have that option as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, when it comes to if you should take if you, if, you, if you should ever take insurance, a lot of people get caught up on Medicare. Like, what, should I, now, what about this Medicare topic? And we were talking about this before we went on air. And Jared, you made a good point in regards to Medicare patients who are not post-op that. For the most part, they just need general health strength and balance exercises, which you can, which you don't necessarily need to use their benefits for because Medicare does not really provide for that. It's always, it's more for like a musculoskeletal pathology or disc um, or issue.
0: Correct. So here's the way to think about it Would you say that personal trainers across the world? Uh, Let's just stick with America. Personal trainers across the nation are working with people over the age of 65, yes or no? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they are. They work okay. Uh, We could also say it's a fact that most people over the age of 65 have some sort of disease. Mm -hmm. Knee pain, shoulder pain, diabetes, hypertension. They have some sort of medical issue. I I don't know too many 65-year-olds that don't have at least one problem going on. Right, constant, like a constant.
1: It's a constant variable. It's not necessarily leaving, right.
0: Does this mean that personal trainers are breaking the law by working with these people because they're delivering, quote-unquote, skilled services or rehabilitation by giving them a general exercise program? No, of course not. Just because a non-skilled person works with a human being that has a disability or a disease process, or even an injury doesn't mean that that person is breaking the law. By the same rationale, just because a physical therapist works with a a patient over the age of 65 who has Medicare does not mean they're delivering physical therapy, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: right? If I am doing a general exercise program with somebody who has Medicare and the intention is to improve their general conditioning, health, well-being, this is not necessarily physical therapy. Why? Because that service can be delivered by an unskilled person just as easily. And that ultimately is what Medicare defines as, is this essentially, or should this be provided by a physio or not? Should this be billed for? It's You ask the question as a physio, what I'm doing could it be provided by an unskilled person? When I say unskilled, I mean unskilled in the domain of medicine. A a personal trainer is an unskilled person in the eyes of Medicare. Not that they're unskilled. They're just unskilled (laughs) in the eyes of Medicare. So you could even say, could a personal trainer deliver these services? If the answer is yes, you're not doing physical therapy because that could be provided by anybody. Right? I mean, you could hire somebody off the street to take you through an exercise program in a gym. So... Many, many clinics will see Medicare patients who don't actually need physical therapy. They just need general exercise. They just need general balance training. They just need general cardiovascular conditioning. Work with the person. They're not even treating a particular disease process and bill Medicare. Okay, so you have to ask the question, is that what they should be doing? Is that really a skilled service you're providing? Okay, put that on the back burner for a second. The converse of that is if a Medicare insured human being walks into your clinic or walks into your office, whatever it is, and wants services, they could have 10 different things going on. If you have no intention of actually making any of those conditions, those actual conditions better, and your intervention is going to be general exercise, general balance training, and general cardiovascular conditioning, there is no need to bill Medicare because those services could be easily provided by a personal trainer. And so uh, there's this thing about, you know, you can't treat Medicare patients for cash. True, because you have to replace the word treat with the word work with. You can work with Medicare patients for cash. You just can't treat them. And just because you're giving somebody exercise, you're giving them general balance training, and you're giving them general cardiovascular conditioning, you are not treating a disease process. You are training a human being to function in the world. And training a human being to function in the world is the domain of a personal trainer. And so it is not necessary to send those bills to Medicare. Now, if you want your ass covered, you have them sign an ABN, which is the advanced beneficiary notice, which basically says, listen, I know you have Medicare and I have no intention of billing Medicare. Essentially, you have a checkbox, I think, number two or three, whatever it is, so that everybody's clear that you are not providing a service that is designed to treat a particular illness. And I think that if you want to be a cash-based practitioner and you're like, what the hell do I do with Medicare patients? The answer is most Medicare patients do not need their pathologies addressed. Most Medicare patients who are not post-op just need general exercise, general balance training, general flexibility, general cardiovascular conditioning. You can pass them off to a personal trainer, you can do it yourself, but you are not required to bill Medicare for these things because they are, in essence capable of being provided by somebody who is, quote unquote, in the eyes of Medicare, unskilled. I I talked a lot, but did that make sense?
1: Well, that makes sense. And and I'm making this up, but that's why the government has put a cap on Medicare (laughs) visits. (laughs) (laughs) Because they know, well, for one, they want to save money. But two, they know that they can't save money if they give them (laughs) a ton of visits. Right. Because they understand the fact of what you just mentioned, where for the most part, at 65 or an older People are dealing with a number of ailments, right? And so it's going to be conditions that are going to plateau or have plateaued, and you're you're in this maintenance phase, and that's why they don't and they don't pay for maintenance; they pay for progress. Progress. That's right. Go ahead, Carrie. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's why we're a team, guys.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some some people will argue these days that Medicare will pay for not maintenance but prevention. prevention of (laughs) deterioration. So, for example, if you treating a patient with Parkinson's prevents their Parkinson's from getting worse, even if they're not getting better, in conditions whereby the disease process would normally continue to cause functional decline. So if you have a patient whose disease process would otherwise produce continued functional decline, if you can stop that functional decline... Technically speaking, the person's not getting any better, Mm -hmm. but because they're not getting worse, you're creating a benefit Mm. that they would otherwise not receive. Now, but again, let's say you have a patient with with Parkinson's. You are not ever treating the Parkinson's. You cannot treat Parkinson's. This is not possible. Parkinson's is a deterioration in the substantia nigra of the dopamine-producing cells. You have no ability to treat that you are always treating the human being, never the disease. So when you're working with a patient with Parkinson's, here's the question. Can a personal trainer teach a Parkinson's patient boxing?
2: Yeah, they do it all the time. Yeah, Yeah.
0: they do it all the time. So because we have a license called physio, we can't do that. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense at face value. If you are working with a patient with Parkinson's, and you decide at some point in time that their physical therapy benefits are, are up and you no longer want to bill Medicare, does this mean you can never work with the person again? Because Medicare says you can't work with a patient who has a, a, a disease that needs to be treated. Now what, what do you, you just have to get rid of this person forever? Mm. Like that doesn't make any sense, does it? So the reality is, if you want to do boxing with a Parkinson's patient, that's fine. Do not document that you are treating Parkinson's. Just document that you are doing boxing because that is what you are doing. That person is coming to you and they're learning boxing. And guess what? Boxing happens to help with Parkinson's, but do not document that you are treating Parkinson's because you are treating, excuse me, you are training a human being. And if you're training a human being for a skill like boxing, just because you're a physio doesn't mean you can't do that. Yes, you are beholden to your degree, but you can still work with this person. You just have to be very, very careful about the words that you use when you take notes. And this is one of the things that uh, the company I worked with, uh, I mentioned earlier that I'm consulting, they were doing some wellness-based services with Parkinson's people. I'm sorry, uh, with uh, Medicare people. And I said, let me see the notes. They show me the notes. I said, let me see the wellness notes. So they show me the wellness notes. And on the wellness notes, they were using words like pain. They were using words like, uh, rather than saying spotting, they were using words like a gate belt was applied to prevent falls mm. rather than saying uh, a client. They were saying patient. Mm. If you do this and Medicare audits you and pulls that somehow they get a hold of it, they're going to say, what the hell are you doing? That is a patient and they have Medicare and you should have been billing us. Yeah. But if you document it correctly, if your intention, your honest to good intention is this. I am personal training this person to be more fit. I am not treating a disease. If you can honestly say that when you're working with somebody and you document it as such, you call the person a client, not a patient. You use the word spotting, which is what the personal trainers use, as opposed to word guarding, which is what a physio might use. You don't talk about that you were applying this for that. You're not stretching to reduce uh, hypertonicity and, uh, you know, and cogwheel rigidity of the hamstring. Like, no. You're, you're stretching, stretching, stretching for general health. and <laughs> You're stretching the hamstring. You have to document it the right way, and you must have the conversation with the the individual the right way. Listen, I have no intention of treating your Parkinson's. Parkinson's is a chronic condition. As you know, it's not going to go away, and maybe it's going to get better. Maybe it's going to get worse, but what I'm going to do with you is I'm going to work with you on your general health and wellness, and lo and behold, you might feel quite a bit better. This is true with personal trainers, too. When I first started out as a personal trainer, I had no intention of treating a disease process. But didn't a lot of the people that I work with get out of pain? Didn't they feel better? Didn't they improve their endurance? Didn't their balance get better? Was I treating those things? Absolutely not. I was simply giving them what all human beings need. All human beings need strength, cardio, balance, and flexibility. Everybody needs it. You can add some things in there. You can add agility. You can add power. Everybody needs that. You want to work with a Medicare patient? Fine. Don't call them a Medicare patient. Call them a human being and give them what it is that they need for health. That is how you work with that population. It's a mindset shift and it's also a documentation shift and it's a conversation shift. Now, what you said earlier, right? What about if somebody walks into your cash-based practice, you don't accept Medicare, and they have a total knee replacement, and they come in and they say, I just had a total knee replacement. That changes the game. Mm
1: -hmm. That's right. That's right. And... If you came if you if you started this podcast not knowing if you should <laughs> take insurance or was on the fence or you needed more confirmation as to why you should never take insurance, hopefully we clarify some um some of those questions that you may have had, and just to give you a recap on the major things that we said are the major reasons why you should never accept insurance or take insurance, I should say is that you should avoid. The collections, the collection headaches. Right. So we talked about that. It can be a hassle getting reimbursement, getting uh, getting no, getting paid, getting authorization and so forth. So keep that in mind. And then also the ethical component when it comes to making decisions as a physical therapist, when it comes to what codes to use and what type of modalities you may use that you would use if you were getting reimbursed and so forth. So just keep that in mind. And then emr we talked about how it could just make documentation in general more of a hassle more time consuming you need to be out there marketing and so forth um so be so just keep that in mind and then also with the rates you can't dictate your own rates if you accept insurance so keep that true autonomy in terms of how you treat as well as what you feel you're worth and um and and make those rates yourself and then medicare that that question is always a very important one, but if most of your patients that you're going to see at the Medicare level only need general health strength and balance, and they are not dealing with a particular ailment, ailment specifically, or they are not post-op, then you really don't need to be in network with Medicare as well. So those are very key points, I think, when you're deciding on if you should not accept insurance. If these fall true for you, then you're probably better off not accepting insurance when you say, jail. now here's
0: the question. Do you, do you accept insurance?
1: I accept we insurance. Do. You son of a bitch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you just convinced them not to take insurance, but you take insurance. So in the next podcast, what are we going to talk about? You,
1: why you should accept insurance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the next, the ne- I think the title of the next one is, uh, uh why you should never open a cash-based practice <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, there are some real downsides to opening a cash-based practice. You guys have found a beautiful balance in your practice. You, you're doing it in a way where you you are making money. You have streamlined it. You've you've essentially cracked the code on how to accept insurance if you're going to do it. And you started out cash-based. And I think part of our conversation, you know, was about why not go insurance with a few, and then you started to go and you were like, you know what, this insurance thing is actually kind of, I can grow this practice really fast. When I, uh, when I started out, I was in network with Blue Cross, in network with Blue Cross, we grew the practice faster than I could keep up with. So there are very good reasons why you should be, uh, with, with an insurance company, uh, and you should absolutely never go cash. But if you want to hear those answers, you got to stay tuned until the next one. Thanks so much for listening to the Performance Doc Academy podcast. Make sure to head over to www.PerformanceDocAcademy.com where you can learn everything that you need to know about how to start, grow, and eventually sell your very own physical therapy practice. We are gonna teach you step by step. It is all of the information and knowledge that we wish that we had when we started out in our own practices, and this is gonna save you thousands and thousands of dollars in mistakes. Head over to www.PerformanceDocAcademy.com. We'll see you there.